Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the continued fallout from the inconclusive general election, the Greenfell fire tragedy in London, and whether we have reached the end of austerity. I'm delighted to be joined by Martin Wolfe, the FT's chief economics commentator, Henry Mann's political correspondent, economics editor Chris Giles, and political commentator Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. So we're one week on from the general election campaign and, well, not much has changed. Theresa May is still in Downing Street, hanging on with her cabinet pretty much unchanged from where it was before the election. There's no sign of any formal deal with the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland, but we're still cracking on with the start of Brexit talks next week, as well as the Queen's speech. The febrile atmosphere in Westminster has been heightened with a disastrous fire in a social housing block in West London, which has killed scores of people and raised some very pertinent questions about housing safety. Miranda Green, let's just start off with where Theresa May is at. So she didn't win the general election, but neither did Labour. So we were in this hung parliament situation, but exactly where we were this time last week that she hasn't got a deal with the DUP so doesn't have a majority in the House of Commons yet Labour can't put a majority together either so we're just sort of trottling and not much is happening. It's a very peculiar situation not least because Mrs May herself is such a weakened diminished figure because of the way that the campaign went for the Conservatives so we've had a peculiar week in which Labour has claimed a sort of moral victory even though they're way behind the Conservatives in number of seats and Theresa May has decided not to resign but to carry on and as she put it steady the ship but she's a very isolated figure she's lost her two key advisors who were really extra limbs of her political personality and the country's still reading from three terrorist attacks and now this appalling incident in West London. And it seems, as you quite rightly said, Seb, to be quite a febrile mood afoot. So I think actually the national mood is quite sober one week on. It seemed rather exhilarating last week, this unexpected election result. And we're all in a slightly darker place. And as you say, Brexit negotiations start on Monday. And there seems little sign from the government at the moment of any change in their approach to those negotiations, despite failing to win a majority and a mandate for their Brexit plan. Henry Mann's Theresa May's position is a bit precarious at the moment. The fact that this deal with the DUP, some kind of supply and confidence agreement, has not actually come to fruition yet. And Tories are still talking about when, not if, she's going to go. And it's talk about does she survive the summer? Does she go in the autumn? And on the other side, it's not really great considering on Monday, David Davis will be sitting down with Michelle Barnier to open up the Article 50 negotiations. And the other side are going to look at this and think, well, you command no majority in Parliament. You didn't win the general election. They're going to be rather unrelenting, you would imagine. Yeah, one of the things that struck me this week is just how much the government and to some extent Downing Street has on its plate. So Theresa May is trying to deal with 
putting together an agreement with the DUP. That's taken a little longer than people expected. The government initially announced on Saturday it had a deal and then had to confess on Sunday that it had a good spirited discussion. But as well as that, the Prime Minister's actually got involved in efforts to try and get back to power sharing in Stormont in Northern Ireland. So that's another set of discussions with all the Northern Irish parties. She's trying to prepare for Brexit negotiations, trying to put together her Queen's speech and decide which things which were in the Conservative manifesto are still viable with a much smaller parliamentary force. And the Grenfell Tower fire has put a whole new set of priorities onto the government. So it really is quite a burden. And I think that's part of the reason why we haven't seen a lot of the Prime Minister this week. They have so many things on their plate in Downing Street. She hasn't reasserted her authority, I think, with any real force this week because we haven't seen her, because she hasn't been able to announce a deal, because when she went to the Grenfell fire, she seemed a bit underwhelming and didn't speak to residents. And another remarkable thing is when she called the election, she had approval rating of plus 10, according to pollsters YouGov. After the election result, that is minus 34. She is now less popular amongst the British public than Jeremy Corbyn. It's an extraordinary change of circumstances, isn't it, Miranda? But the problem for the Conservatives is that there's not really a much better alternative because if Theresa May quit now and went into a messy leadership contest, it would reopen the debate about hard Brexit, soft Brexit, or any Brexit indeed. And then you would have the Boris question, is he the right person? Would he get stopped again? And when you look through the sort of list of potential candidates, there's not really anybody who would fix the problems because they've not really got someone who is charismatic enough to beat Jeremy Corbyn, who's also got the leadership to take Britain through these talks and is acceptable to both wings of the party, which is why Theresa May's best hope for clinging on is the fact that there's no one better. I think that's true. And also, as Henry has pointed out, this enormous burden of trying to deal with Brexit at the same time as putting a government together. Also, I don't think we should forget that the economy is not looking that friendly as a background either. There's some uh, data out this absolutely. week. Absolutely. So this week it became clear that this problem with stagnant and even falling wages has not gone away, which may account for quite a lot of the election result in fact and inflation is going up as well so people are going to be feeling this squeeze they're feeling angry about the reaction to the Grenfell fire and indeed the circumstances that probably caused the fire we're not quite sure yet but it looks like a case of people in social housing being poorly treated and not listened to by those in power so you have got a situation in which it's very difficult for the Conservative Party to do what it did last year after the Brexit referendum and have a kind of internal stitch up and replace one Prime Minister with another but as you quite rightly say the danger of that also is it would be reopening the Brexit hard versus soft leavers versus remainers arguments when it seems that what the nation needs is actually some sort of unified position and there have been failed attempts to try and convince the government to bring in other sides and other parties to the Brexit approach and to recalibrate the approach to the Brexit negotiations. Of course that's difficult as well because the Labour Party doesn't seem to be using this opportunity to push for a different sort of Brexit which of course is what a lot of our business audience would like to see. For example, you know, John McDonnell, within hours of the election result, was making it clear as he saw it that the Labour Party was against membership of the single market. So I think across the political landscape, it's a confused picture, not just inside the Conservative Party. So if you take Brexit out of it, Henry, we'll look at the Greenfield fire tragedy, which Theresa May has really compounded her problems by her reaction to that, that Jeremy Corbyn went there and spent a long time speaking to the victims and was pictured amongst them and helping with all the donations, whereas Theresa May went and for whatever reason made a decision not to speak to the victims and only spoke to the emergency service. And she's been highly criticised by people inside her own party, My 
Michael Portillo, the former Conservative cabinet minister on TV, that it was a big mistake. And a lot of other people are saying, well, why didn't she do that? And I guess it was some sort of calculated risk about being heckled or what have you. But the overall perception of this is a prime minister who is unable to show much empathy. Yes, I think the problems she had on the campaign trail seem to have followed her back into Downing Street. There were just a couple of glimpses of a more relaxed Theresa May this week, I thought. One example was in the House of Commons where the Speaker, John Burko was re-elected. And she joked from the dispatch box, well, at least someone got a landslide. And that seemed a self-deprecating joke, which was quite in tune with the nation's feelings at that point. Equally, although it looked slightly cringy on the internet, her trying to do a Mexican wave at the France-England football game was not something that you necessarily expect her to do. And yet we've gone back to Theresa May, who doesn't feel happy in those open settings, doesn't give relaxed TV interviews where she can really empathise with the audience. And I think although Tory MPs are prioritising staying in government at the moment, they're prioritising keeping Jeremy Corbyn out, there must come a point where the Prime Minister's inability to change her style, a style which has now been found wanting in an election, that becomes a deal-breaker, really. And we can talk about Boris Johnson and whether he's the answer. I think he, in fact, has a lot of baggage and a lot of people within the parliamentary party who simply aren't prepared to forgive and forget after the Brexit referendum. But even people looking to him shows very much what Theresa May is missing. I agree with everything that Henry has said, but I actually think the Conservative Party's problem is much deeper now. I mean, if we do get another general election this year, given how people are feeling, given how there seem to be signs of just an exhaustion with not just austerity, but the whole running theme of inequality, that will now be magnified through the lens of this extraordinary disaster at the Grenfell Tower. And there's a good chance that another election could return a Labour government. So I actually think it's much deeper now than Theresa May's personal failings as a leader and as an empathetic stewardship of government. I think the Conservative Party is in a real fix. These things are always quite hard to measure, Henry, but the mood generally feels like we are slowly edging towards some sort of Labour government, though, if there is another election this year. Because if we talked about all these candidates, as we said, we had Boris Johnson, Amber Rudd, Michael Fallon, David Davis, Nicky Morgan, all these figures are all thought to be interested in running for the party leadership. It's hard to see how they could turn things around quickly enough, because as Miranda was saying, these problems are deep and they're being compounded all the time. Before you even get to this fundamental split on Brexit, not on the Brexit problem, David Davis is going to sit down on Monday. And that's going to be a big test for Theresa May's government. You know, does that get off on the right foot? Does it have some softer language that many in the cabinet, like Damon Green, the new deputy prime minister, want to have? Or is it just a very tense and fraught business with no compromise from either side, which again will create more questions about how long this government will last? Let me just put the counter-argument, because I think it's very hard to make predictions about an election which hasn't been called. We probably shouldn't make predictions again after yeah, the election result. quite right to remind us, Henry. The counter-argument is that the terrain in which Jeremy Corbyn did very badly as leader was the normal parliamentary term. I mean, he wasn't good at Prime Minister's Question Time. He wasn't good at putting the squeeze on ministers at other moments. Um, and we're about to go into the Queen's speech next Wednesday, and then presumably quite quickly, some of the serious legislation, so uh, the Great Repeal Bill. Now, Corbyn said on TV that um, the Great Repeal Bill, which prepared Britain for Brexit in legal terms, that it was dead in its current form and that he wanted to see much less discretion given to ministers. And I kind of think in practice, that idea doesn't really seem to have much, much to it. I mean, you have to establish some kind of legal basis for Britain to move from the current legal situation to a post-Brexit scenario where it no longer directly applies some EU rules and then 
um, a base court ruling and that kind of thing. And it may just happen that when these things come to fruition over the next few weeks, that voters are able to see that the Labour Party doesn't have a position on Brexit that is notably distinct from the government, hasn't yet formulated exactly what it wants. And although on the election campaign we saw that Theresa May had no clothes, to use an expression, we may see in the next few weeks that Jeremy Corbyn has no clothes when he talks about Brexit. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, this is a big test for the Labour Party, Mm. actually, as to how they handle this now. And it's not like an election campaign where you just get to be the nicer guy. And There's a lot of talk inside the Labour Party about this is the moment for unity. Because Corbyn outperformed expectations, there is a mood to try and back him now and come together. So they will be able to draw on a broader pool of talent within the parliamentary party to handle these questions. I think that's kind of crucial because the shadow cabinet before the election was very, very weak indeed. But it's also the case that they got away with facing both ways in the election campaign on Brexit, as Henry rightly says. And when it comes to these matters of in or out of the single market, do you actually want to stay in the customs union? They're about to be tested. Coming back to the Grunfeld Tower tragedy, Miranda, it does feel like one of those big moments in terms of, you know, the scenes that we've seen from London are absolutely horrific and the uh, the death toll is rising pretty much by every hour at the moment as firefighters make their way through the wreckage. And as with all these things, aside from the leadership question, these things do become political and there's been a lot of scrutiny over um, health and safety regulation, over fire regulation, and also of the uh, Kensington Chelsea, which is the local council, their role in all of this. Um, Where do you see this going? Is this going to be a step change moment, do you think, in terms of policy and social housing in the UK? It feels like an enormous moment. It feels like one of the scandals, frankly, from the 1960s, where large swathes of poorer people were treated with contempt by the system, and in this case with absolutely horrifying consequences. So I think that it has to be handled more quickly than the government seems to be prepared to. The idea that we don't have the outcome of an inquiry for two years seems to me completely untenable. This whole question of how councils use subcontractors to manage housing, that needs to be looked at, as you say, the health and safety rules over fire protection. But I think also it is just this underlying question of inequality actually and this does feed into a narrative that doesn't help the Conservative Party keep control of the situation. I hope it's a moment when things change. You know housing is one of the enormous political issues that is always carefully fudged and ignored by the main parties and it needs to be top of the agenda. And I guess Henry that this slow response from the government is due to the fact of all these problems of the fact that they're still trying to put a government together. Yes and Theresa May doesn't actually have a director of communications at the moment and has lost her two close advisors, Fiona Hill, a former journalist, and Nick Timothy, who used to write her speeches. So I'm not sure where the ideas are coming from, but they're not evident in great number to journalists and I think to the public at the moment. I think housing as an issue is bound to go up the political agenda. And you saw that in the election with some, I think, more ambitious pledges from some of the parties. A little bit of greater willingness, even amongst Conservatives, to use public money where possible. And I think undoubtedly, not just because of this fire, but because of the demographic pressures and the deal that younger generations are getting, this is going to be a really big issue. Even after the borough market terrorist attack, despite pleas on various sides to avoid politicising a tragedy, you saw that it does become political very, very quickly. You know, within hours, it had turned to a question of police cuts, which may or may not have been pertinent to what actually happened, but it accessed a level of public anger about austerity. And it seems as if almost any news event, and this is a huge event, feeds into this 
narrative on austerity at the moment and about how people are treated. Finally, Miranda, I just want to pick up on one last news topic this week, which was the resignation of Tim Farron as leader of the Liberal Democrats. And this was a bit unexpected because Mr Farron actually gained seats to the Liberal Democrats in this election, expected to go down. What's gone on there and what do you think is going to happen next for the party? Well, my understanding is that Tim Farron had planned to go anyway and to start a leadership contest for his successor at some point over the summer. But he was then pushed or pushed this week in a piece of extremely bad timing by the Liberal Democrats. He Mm. should have known there were other things going on that were far more important than their internal troubles. And he went giving a statement about his own personal faith and how he'd found it incompatible to be questioned on his personal faith while leading a political party. I felt it was quite self-indulgent personally. I think they did do better than, for example, even on the night, somebody like myself with knowledge of the party had expected in a scenario where they were being heavily squeezed by a huge Labour vote and a huge Tory vote. So going up from eight to 12 seats was progress. They could make progress next time, but there are lots of undercurrents which threaten the party's future. So the next leader has a lot of big challenges on their plate. And just very briefly, who are the top candidates for that next leader? Well, the top candidate at the moment is Jo Swinson, a young Scottish MP who regained her seat. She was a minister in the coalition and was seen to be very competent. I think it's thought that a fresh face is a good idea. Vince Cable obviously has a lot of recognition and respect. It's possible that he might be better suited as a kind of sage of the party, you know, talking about the economy as we go into a turbulent period on that and talking about Brexit. But those will probably be the two front runners, possibly Ed Davey, another Lib Dem, former minister, returned to a South West London seat last week. So has Britain reached the end of austerity? Jeremy Corbyn proclaimed on the campaign trail that this party were doing well and reaching new voters because people were sick of public spending cuts, while noises from Theresa May's slightly altered cabinet suggest that the cuts might be softened in the next parliament, however long that lasts. But where does this leave the state of the UK's public finances, especially given Brexit? So, Martin Wolf, in the FT this week, you've written Austerity's Dead Long Live Austerity. Can you tell us, do you think this is actually going to result in any practical change into the government's economic agenda, or is this just all talk and bluster? Well, obviously, I don't know what will emerge in the next budget, and they presumably will begin to think about it. And I obviously have no idea what they can get through Parliament now, which is pretty difficult before. As we know, they were reversed on very important things. The last budget, it presumably will be even more difficult now. My guess would be, sort of immediately in terms of this government, however long it lasts, that they will try to avoid doing anything that is seen as provocative. Whether that means they will soften program of cuts, because there are some, particularly welfare, to which they are already committed, I mean, which are in the program, I honestly don't know. I do think that, and indeed it's already been clear in the campaign, that the ambition to eliminate the deficit has already come down a long way. Especially from, from where it was in 2010. It started about 10% of G- If we take the public sector net borrowing, which is the broadest, it's gone down from about 10 to last year's 2.5% of GDP. So it's a big decline. Whether they will actually eliminate it now in the next parliament, given the Brexit mess, what's likely to happen to the economy, very difficult, I think. And the political mess, I think 
one would have to say, I, as a matter of prediction, that's not what I would desire, but as a matter of prediction, I think it's rather unlikely. Chris Charles, what do you see as the economic outlook for the next couple of years? We've had some data in this week that does show that consumer spending is faltering and retail sales are looking a bit shaky at the moment. This could be the long tail of the Brexit vote or could be some other things, but it certainly doesn't look like a good atmosphere for a growing economy, which would help get the deficit down. Certainly in the last two weeks, the six months after the Brexit vote where we saw no impact on the economy, the last two weeks, I think universally the data has been bad. Universal bad data from business surveys, from consumer surveys, from industrial production figures, inflation being higher, spending being lower. And all of that is pointing to a rather difficult period ahead in the immediate future. Though we are uncertain about how long this difficult period will last, but this is the consequence of Sterling's fall hitting consumers. And we're not seeing a big offset from business investment or from exports, which is where you might have hoped to see that offset. So we are going through a difficult patch in the economy. How long it's going to last, we don't know, but that we are likely to then begin to see hitting tax revenues. That generally happens quite quickly, in which case everything that was difficult already for the government gets more difficult for the government. So when you think of about the political difficulties, add on to that economic difficulties they haven't faced yet, and things over the summer look pretty hot. I think everything Chris says is right, but I think we now are, given the state of our economy, which I expect to be really quite weak, and the politics and the negotiations are about to start, there is a real risk of a profound loss of confidence in the UK. I wouldn't say how great it is. And that means that while they would love not to do anything about the public finances, they might find themselves in a crisis. And as I've seen before, it's happened before, a long time ago, once you're in that situation, everything changes. And how much is this the UK versus the rest of the world? Because the Eurozone certainly picked up, you know, the argument that was made during last year's EU referendum that was being shackled to a corpse. Well, the corpse seems to have come out of its grave and is walking again. Yes, and we look like not so much a corpse as a country that is in the process of committing suicide. I can't see any way in the present circumstances, political and economic, that the next two or three years won't be extremely difficult. And in some ways, because they're unique, they are self-caused, much more difficult to manage politically than the 2007-8-9 crisis, which at least we could argue was part of a global crisis. So if we look at this situation, Chris, how important is it, still in your view, to keep on cutting the deficit and trying to balance the books, at least by the end of this parliament, which I believe is what the Conservatives promised in their manifesto? It's important to have a plan for the public finances that people think is reasonably credible. If you have an economic downturn, it's not important in the short term to keep cutting the deficit. So you've got to separate those two things. If we have an economic problem, we don't want to then compound that with tax rises or further spending cuts, unless, as Martin says, there's an international loss of confidence in the UK, in which case you don't have any option. You just have to do it. And that is a disaster scenario. But we're not seeing that yet. You would never see it until it comes. That's what the trouble with these sorts of crises. They will come at you without any warning. And I'm not predicting this in any way, but just to say the fact you're not seeing it shouldn't make you feel more comfortable. I wouldn't predict it because it's impossible to predict. All I can say is, having been around throughout the 70s, we are doing our best to create it. And uh, people abroad are beginning, I think, to pay attention. 
let's just flip to the other side of the fence and look at what the opposition is talking about. So Jeremy Corbyn put forward a very radical programme of increasing taxation and massively increasing public spending. But they've also promised to cut the deficit as well. If we have another election, this year I was talking about earlier with Henry and Miranda, because there is a good chance Labour could win that election, what would that mean for the economy? That's very difficult to tell. They do indicate that they want to balance the current budget. They want to increase investment, however, very substantially. So the overall deficit would seem to me rather clear would increase. My own view is that put forward in a completely rational and sensible way with a sensible plan for public spending, both the investment and the current spending, and this increase in taxation would make us look, as the Institute for Fiscal Studies pointed out, a bit like Canada. Well, that's hardly a disaster. The trouble is, I don't think people would look at the Labour programme and think this is a sensible set of fiscal plans and a sensible set of spending plans. So I think they would say this is Labour in its 1970s irresponsible style led by somebody who really doesn't have a clue. This is scary. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree. I'd just highlight the point by saying there's the deficit and how much you borrow, which is one aspect of politics. And I think we both agree there's not a huge amount of room for manoeuvre there. You can do a little bit, but not a huge amount. And then there's a sort of broad, what is your level of taxation and your level of public spending? And that's the bread and butter of politics. And it's perfectly fine for Labour to say, we would like an economy and a society with higher spending and higher taxes. The trouble with Labour is they have said that, but then they've said, and you, the vast majority of the population, won't have to pay because evil corporates or the very, very super rich will do all the paying and therefore it's a free lunch for you. And we all know that when that's been tried in the past, it generally has not been very successful. Just to add, the spending plans they have, to my mind, are rather outrageous. A quarter of the additional spending goes to cancel student debt. And the people who benefit from that are the most successful students who are going to be the elite of our future society. As a matter of priority for the Labour, I think that's really a scandal. And finally, Martin, do you think the answer to this is basically raising taxes? Because the Conservatives removed a commitment in their manifesto as in last time, which was to not increase VAT, national insurance, contributions during that part. That's now gone. Do you think given this and given that I think Mr Corbyn is right, there is a growing public unease about inequality. So if they want to address that, does that mean just increasing taxes? Yes, I think if politicians were honest about our situation, our public finances, our long-term situation because of ageing and so forth, they would be having a conversation with the public which says we are somewhat undertaxed, you're going to have to pay more taxes to have the social services you want, and this is how we're going to do it. And that's a very legitimate debate between the parties. But I have no doubt that 10 years from now we will have higher taxes than now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, the lesson from the election is that politics... You do well if you try and avoid that and say that someone else will pay and that's where we're going to be. When someone else doesn't pay, then there'll be even less trust in politicians. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Until then, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 